Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be covering the Babylon 5 Season 2 episode, Acts of Sacrifice. So this is a really good episode. Uh, it balances its tones really well. It has a very, very dark and serious A-plot. And then the B-plot with Ivanova is some of the most hilarious comedy we have in this series and will continue to have. Um, you know, B5 originally had issues with comedy, I think. Like, there was times where it was funny, but then there was times where it was just awkward funny. Um, and then the, that weird occasion with, like, the intentionally funny music just didn't work. I think here is perhaps one of the best jokes of all time in the show. And the humor will continue to be just as good moving forward. I'll, I'll start out with the... Speaking of the comedy, I'll go ahead and start out with the comedy. Um because I have the least to say about it. The Lumati, they are presented as this incredibly arrogant, um, incredibly quote-unquote superior. They think they are superior over everyone, um, and they're firm believers in basically the, you know, the strong survive, the weak die out, Darwinism, evolution, and natural selection. And it's, it's intentionally supposed to be absurd, um, and they're, they're, they're just so stuck up. And I've read that this was supposed to be a parody of the way the, uh, United Federation of Planets is, uh, presented in Star Trek. In Star Trek, if you've never watched the show, there's this, uh, organization, which all the main characters come from, uh, usually, um, which is the, the UFP, or the United Federation of Planets, and this, uh, this federation is, uh, sort of a, uh, utopia, uh, it's supposed to be a utopia, you know, we've moved beyond money, problems, disease, war, etc., and we've all come together to make a better future for ourselves and our posterity, and that's all fine and dandy, it's, you know, not exactly realistic, but it's, you know, for what Star Trek is trying to be, which is a fun, optimistic adventure uh, in space, it works just fine and is wonderful for it. However, there is a concept in Star Trek that has caused much scrutiny over the Federation, uh, both in-universe and out in, in, in real-life terms of people looking at Star Trek uh, of the Prime Directive. The Prime Directive says that the Federation is not supposed to interfere with the natural course of evolution in a species unless they have developed warp drive. Warp drive uh, or warp technology is what allows FTL travel in the Star Trek universe. On the surface, seems fine. You know, just don't interfere with, you know, any species, whatever, um, you know, until they've developed FTL. The issue there is is that there's many episodes about that that causes issues with them of its own right. Um, and basically, the Federation comes off as cold and malicious by letting people die or help people from disease that they could easily be cured from or whatever simply because they're not, uh, they're not ready. Um, and it's... It, it's basically can be seen as sort of a, you know, highly advanced, you know, godlike beings basically sowing judgment uh, upon this lesser these lesser beings. It can be read that way. It's not intended to be. It was intended to be 
a um a policy that would help that would uh, that would ensure that no race no species got an advantage over another um but when you think about it from a moralistic point of view it becomes incredibly horrible and and is debatable i think the prime directive can work if put in the right context uh if not it kind of goes you know goes horribly wrong and there's a lot of episodes in star trek that are pretty bad because of using the prime directive to justify some pretty horrible acts um i th i think there are certain uh limitations to the prime directive but this isn't a star trek discussion but i'm just bringing that up because the lumati were intentionally JMS's commentary on the absurdity of believing you are superior and only people who have developed to your level of technology are worthy talking to. The Lumati, you know, have a um, speaker for them. He refuses to talk. Um, and, he, and we see that they continue to take the wrong lessons. Avonava shows them down below and down below is supposed to be this horrifying deal of, you know, economic, uh, you know, inequality and in what happens when, you know, the desperate, uh, you know, lose out on their money and have to resort to crime. And it's, you know, it's a sad reality of life. And uh, they take it as, well, you're just providing a new workforce, you know, people so desperate they make money. So in, in a way, you're creating your own slave labor. They took the entirely wrong lesson from it. It's supposed to instill uh, a sense of wanting to fix inequality in the world, and instead they see it as a boon, um, showing just how uh, uncaring and apathetic the Lumari are. Uh, once again, this is all supposed to be a commentary on Star Trek, uh, and specifically United Federation's planet's view on dealing with cultures who have not developed to their level of technology. Um, now, the what's funny from this is not only is the Lumatis just arrogant superiority um, routinely, you know, bucked down by Ivanova, but the way the deal happens through misconception and then the Lumati want to seal the deal with sex. Now, you may go, oh, that's just ridiculous. No, it's not. Uh, if you think about it, dating back, you know, early bits of history, there's been a lot of political alliances that have been sealed through sex. A lot of uh, royal families and stuff would trade off their children to seal a political alliance. It was entirely, you know, let's marry these these two children so they can have a child that will be born of both families, and therefore we don't have to, you know, war with each other. That kind of thing has been done since time immemorial. It's always been a thing in, in human history. It's sad, but it's true. And I like how Ivanova feels incredibly uncomfortable, because understandably... Uh, and she figures out a way around it and uh, hoping that the arrogant and quote-unquote superior Lumati would never have done their research to find out um, what human sex was like. So she cheats her way into doing a dance and pretending that it's the human version of sex 
and uh, seals the deal without having to sleep with the Lumati. It's incredibly smart and incredibly funny. It is one of the most laugh-out-loud moments in Babylon 5, and for a show that gets very serious, those laugh-out-loud moments are appreciated because they can be um, ways to alleviate the growing sense of dread and darkness and tragedy that is slowly enveloping the characters and the galaxy. Um, and I, if you've never seen that quote-unquote sex scene, I would highly recommend watching it. It is just hilarious, and Claudia Christensen sells the hell out of it, and it's just the, 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 the reactions of the Lumati, the, the just crazy bonkers dancing, the song she's singing, the jabs at, uh, social commentary when it comes to, you know, old style, you know, you, you roll over and go to sleep. New style, you order a pizza and then you never call me again. Uh, there's just a lot of fun, you know, hilarity to have in that scene. Uh, and I think that B-plot works very well for what it's supposed to be, which is supposed to lighten the mood for the much sadder and darker A-plot. So, with the Narn Centauri conflict kicking in, Jakar and Lando are having to deal with the side effects of this. Jakar um, is, is being seen as this weak leader because he wants to ensure an alliance with the other aliens, the humans, whoever, the Mimbari, just in hopes of, uh, you know, getting someone on his side. They're, the Centauri are going to steamroll the Narn. We even see that at the beginning. The Narn stand no chance. The Centauri are attacking civilians even. And is just it is total death and destruction on the Narn's end. They don't stand a chance and they need assistance. Some sort of assistance if at all possible. Uh, and Londo is dealing with the fact that his recent, you know, uh, political power plays have seen him gain a lot of power and influence in the Centauri government. And now he has tons of friends he never knew he had. And all these quote-unquote friends want something from him. It's They're not real friends. They are uh, using him to gain their own political influence, their own political power. Everything in, this, in the Centauri culture is all about politics and playing this game. And... Uh, Londo is tired of it. He's tired of everything being so uh, mired in politics and him being used constantly. And he wants to experience what it's like to be not cared about anymore. Uh, he used to know what it meant to be unknown. To no one gave a care about him. And now everybody does. And everybody wants him for something. And now he wishes he can go back. And so he spends the day gambling, you know, at one of the casinos and wants to spend time with his friend Garibaldi in a magnificent scene uh, that truly shows the, the deep pit that Londo is crawling into and he has no help to get out. Um, the, the, that, that, that moment, and I just want to say Peter Dreyfus just sells the hell out of this moment of, I want you to be happy for me, I want you to ha and I want me to be happy for you. Why is everyone running around like they are afraid of me? And Garibaldi goes, because maybe we are. Such a great moment. Uh, as he po points out earlier when he first approaches Garibaldi, you know, a moment of joy and a lifetime of sorrow. Uh, it's... It's a great scene, and he just wants to spend time with his one true friend, Garibaldi. Garibaldi is many things. Garibaldi uh, knows what it's like to have been forgotten. 
and then knows what it's like to have gained a reputation and be pigeonholed by that reputation. And Garibaldi has always had a weird friendship with, with Londo. It's not exactly full friendship. It's, uh, it, it, it's more of an acceptance as colleagues. And they like each other. They genuinely like each other. And I like how, you know, he tries, you know, Londo tries so hard to get Garibaldi to come and have a drink with him, a chemically inoffensive drink. And Garibaldi is like, you know, I have some stuff to do. I'll try and make it. And we occasionally cut back to Londo, who's nervous. I'm for sure if Garibaldi's going to show up and the bar is closing and uh, the bartender wants him out. And he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for my dear friend Garibaldi. Uh, it's nice to have friends, isn't it? Uh, and he's just trying to reassure himself over and over and over, and it's just heartbreaking. And at the end of the episode, when all the situation with the, the outbreak of the non-Centauri violence, which I'll get to in a minute, has been resolved, and Londo takes steps to ensure that no more violence is outbroken on B5, that's when Garibaldi comes to the bar and shares a drink with him. And thinks him. And in Londo talks about how everything is going right in the galaxy right now. But there's a quiver in his voice. There's like a way he's speaking that's very clear that he's unforsure. And Garibaldi knows this. He doesn't really say much. He just sits there and he drinks. And, and, and he listens to his friend. And it's a beautiful moment of Londo trying to get reassurance of where he is in the world where he is in this pit because he knows he's going down somewhere dark and there's only one way out and the Jakar half of this bit this A plot um, you know the the because of the non Centauri conflict you know uh, violence the cycles of violence continue unabated even on neutral territory Narn and Centauri are attacking each other violently and the Narn they they have been oppressed and you know bullied for so long that the bullies have become uh, that the bullied have become the bullies and so they all they want is a demonstration of strength to kill every Centauri and when Jakar approaches uh, you know Delenn for help she goes you know everything you have said points to the fact that you will not stop once you, once this war is ended you said that before that you would only uh, you, this would only end if, once the Centauri are entirely destroyed uh, why should I help you you're just as bad as them you know revenge is all you care about and Jakar takes steps to show that revenge is not all he cares about he wants to stop the needless violence you know, the Centauri citizens, they may have been apathetic to the cause. Some of them may entirely be bigoted towards the Narn, but they're not the soldiers fighting. They're not the ones you should be fighting. And it takes Jakar standing up to the Narn, his own people, and demonstrating the strength he has as a leader to get them to calm down and stop this needless violence. You know, it's it's the cycles of violence. You know, it, it, that's that's the only way these things end is in constant bloodshed, and we perpetuate cycles of violence by letting our own anger, personal biases, and revenge take over our rational thought. You know, uh, that is the only way these things happen, and it, it, the the wheel keeps spinning, 
and sooner or later this wheel needs to be broken by someone or something it just has to stop uh and while the narn are being crushed and morally they need to support someone needs to support them because they stand no chance against the centauri um and but they want a peaceful resolution but earth refuses to take a side they want to remain neutral because there's a there's a thing in the fact that this is a personal vendetta on the behalf of both the narns and the centauri once again it's the cycles of violence no one wants gets and wants to get involved all they want to do is protect themselves to prevent the personal vendetta from spreading out further and further and further. So Earth refuses to take a stance. Delin isn't sure if her government will even take a stance because her power is next to very little now that she's been kicked out of the Great Council and all she is is an ambassador. Uh, so Sheridan once again proves his smarts. Earth worded it saying that we cannot provide official help. So therefore he goes out of his way to provide unofficial help by providing food uh you know and supplies that not weapons, not ships to this, this to the Narn war machine, but to help the citizens, the people who are caught in the middle and to provide food and you know humanitarian supplies. You know, it's it's a start. Hope has been restored for the Darn in some way. And that's when Chakar leaves the room, you know, presenting a strong, you know, front, much like he did with the Narns on the station, showing his strength as a leader. But then when he gets out of sight, he breaks down. And you can't tell if he's crying or laughing because it's both. It's both. The reason it's both is because hope has been restored and he's happy about that. It's a start, but hope is fragile, and he knows very well that it's going to be an uphill battle if hope is to survive, and if his people are to survive what is to come. Anyway, I'll see you next time for the episode Hunter Prey. See you then. Bye. Bye.